Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Megan Reese. Dr. Reese is the former National Security Policy Advisor for Senator Mitt Romney and the founder and CEO of Solid Intel. We discuss China's growing power over U.S. technology, the proposed Restrict Act, and how AI can assist in de-risking us from China. I'm Naveen Tukaram. Let's begin. Dr. Reese, welcome to the podcast, or hopefully I can call you Megan. You can call me Megan or Meg. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's great to have you. You've had some transitions lately. Before we get to your work at Solid Intel, congratulations on the founding. You most recently were with Senator Romney's office for quite some time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I believe you're a national security policy advisor. I was. I had the amazing opportunity to be Senator Romney's NSA for almost four and a half years, which is quite a long time as a Senate staffer. And I'd say it was honestly a heck of a time, quite a, we'd call them uh, dog years. So I was there for decades, essentially. I was very lucky in that my boss and I were very, very aligned with how we viewed the world and what that meant for what we needed to do with it. And his overarching vision for the world was just something that he tasked me to help him execute on. And there were some like very specific principles that just geared all that we got to do together. And that is one, that an act of America is a force for good in the world, that the U.S. needs to link arms with our friends and allies to increase our strength, and that we have countries, most notably China and Russia, that are trying to create a world dominated by authoritarianism. It will be bad, not just for the U.S., but for people around the world. There were major crises during this time. We had the COVID evacuations that had to happen. We had the Afghanistan collapse and we had Ukraine. These are major world events that happened in this very condensed time frame. And this, my job was actually doing crisis management in our office. And because Senator Romney had such a huge name, we did it at a much larger scale than most staffers and most offices. So Big organizations, lots of people, big names, the church, all of these folks were coming to Senator Romney and asking for help, which means that it was my job to identify and create a system, often in just a day or two, that would organize our team so that we could deal with the massive influx and challenges that were happening. And I considered it my job to help them identify as quickly as possible what is it that we need to pull out of this information to elevate to me so that I could start circumventing the bureaucracy at the State Department or at DOD or at the White House and help get around the roadblocks? And then I also, at that point, would identify when do I have to elevate specific cases, specific issues to my boss so that he could get around those things, so he could go to a foreign government to try to get help directly. And we just had to doggedly pursue solutions. Amazing. You touched upon two commonly cited adversaries of the U.S., China and Russia. Can you tell us a bit more about what China is doing specifically to put our technology security at risk? 
So China is both doggedly pursuing inserting cybersecurity risks across our system and across the world that they can use to their advantage. And they're also doing all of the other things, the IP theft, to help them advance those same capabilities. We just have to assume that they're trying to target us at all times, both on the military side as well as the civilian, because they really do view their civil military fusion as all geared towards the goals of the CCP. And so they have their hacking groups, they have their espionage groups, they are all moving in the same direction in a way that the US and other democracies are never going to fuse our systems in the same way. So we're at a disadvantage in the sense that we can't just tell our major tech companies to do certain things, nor would we want to. The fundamental good about the US is that we wouldn't want to do the same things that they are forcing their people to do. But it puts us at a slight disadvantage in certain ways and that we're never going to have the level of data or um, the ability to the inputs into our AI systems eventually that they do. But there are disadvantages to it as well. When you have an authoritarian at top who dictates how it all goes, there are points where he's going to get it wrong. He's going to put the system moving in the wrong direction. And we just have to be prepared to take advantage of that whenever it happens. Talk to us a bit more about the hacking groups that you mentioned. What does that actually mean? And who is sponsoring them? Is it via the Chinese military? So the hacking groups are quite interesting. I still think that the best case to go back to is the OPM hack from years and years ago at this point, which has been attributed. So assume that everything is in one way or another associated with or directed by the CCP. It's all moving in the same direction. So I think we should make that assumption. Whether or not our government officially attributes it is a political decision, but the policies behind it is you have to assume it's all moving in that direction. They're going to take advantage of trying to get any information on our systems as possible and they're going to be fairly effective. And I think we also have to assume that they're doing it in a way that they are putting in vulnerabilities and securities into our systems, um, both on the public and on the commercial and on the government side, so that they can take advantage later on. Um, We've seen some intelligence to that effect recently. And they're long-term thinkers. Look, again, There's a lot of discussion in D.C. about the OPM hack from ages ago, about what it means today. Who could be compromised from SF-86, the 86s, and the vulnerabilities that are in those documents? How could espionage be used today? Can you explain that hack to our audience for those that may not be familiar? This was years ago at this point, but basically they pilfered data from all of the applications for security clearance, which means that folks who have security clearance, they fill out information on all of their foreign contacts, on their debt, on all of their travels, on all of those things that could be used against a person in in order to focus on their vulnerabilities. And the ways that you've seen this in previous conflict scenarios is that you would have a person be blackmailed with this information so that they'd be more willing to share information or to take actions that are contrary to U.S. national interests. And 
the fact that this happened a while ago, yes, it's not all of the people in DC, but they have information on a huge percentage of people. And honestly, a lot of that could be used to their benefit. And so the US has to just take additional precautions all of the time to make sure that our own security personnel are not subject or not likely to participate in those bad actions. I want to come back to what the U.S., whether it's the government or it's the private sector, can do to fill in some of these holes. But before I get to that, I want to talk to you about the Restrict Act and the potential for the ban of TikTok. Maybe you could start with giving our audience a sense of what the Restrict Act is and what it potentially means for U.S. companies and U.S. citizens. Yes, broad picture, and we've talked about this a little bit. Broad picture is this is a bill authored by Senator Mark Warner and Senator John Thune. And in the broadest view, it's attempting to restrict U.S. financial interests in broad swaths of technology from U.S. adversaries defined by a specific list of adversaries in the bill. But the way that the authors of the bill are focusing on this is making sure that we are not taking actions as a country, including in the social media space, that could end up funneling data or vulnerabilities that could be used against us by these adversarial countries. And for better or worse, what happens when you have a first-time bill that's introduced is there end up often being some problems in the bill that need to get addressed later. And in this case, there are some parts of the bill that are likely overly broad that really do need to be narrowed before it passes into law. Right. But I guess the more troubling thing when I read the original version, and I'm not sure if it's changed since then, but I believe there was a $1 million fine and 20 years in prison for any American citizen that violates the bill, which really seemed absurd to me. So I'd love your feedback and color on that. There's a section in this bill that is doing exactly this. So it's a pretty massive fine and a potentially very long sentence if you end up doing some sort of material contribution to technology that is against the interest of the U.S. national security objectives and benefits these adversaries. So again, these adversaries include China. And the big fear, so this is not actually a problem in my view. I think that in general, these sorts of sentences are actually pretty consistent when it comes to material support. But the way that some people are reading the bill is that the end user could end up being subject to these fines or even imprisonment, which means that let's say you are using TikTok, even though it's banned in the US through a VPN, could you end up going to jail for that? I actually don't think that this is a likely interpretation that it could get through the courts or it could get could subject users to these sentences. However, however, when you're passing a bill through committee, you always want to look at what the most extreme interpretations of the language could be, and then try to narrow it down, try to make sure that those extreme interpretations are not what ends up in the final product. So I was looking up the Restrict Act before we went on this podcast, and it looks like it still hasn't gone through what's called committee markup, which is the process when all of the senators who are on the Commerce Committee will issue amendments to the bill. 
And those amendments will get voted on and there will be a live debate happening where I am almost positive this end user concern will be addressed and they will narrow down what's happening in the text of the bill. And I feel more confident about that as well because Mark Warner was asked about this issue specifically. He indicated that that was not what he intended in the writing of the bill. And so my guess is that there will be some sort of amendment process that gets at this issue. And then even if that doesn't get addressed in Commerce Committee, because there are opponents to the bill, anything that any version of this bill that ends up either on the floor or attached to a broader bill package like the NDAA, it would need four corners agreement, which means that multiple senators on both the House and Senate side will have to agree to the text that's included in a broader package. And there would be negotiations that happen at the staff level to get to and address some of these bigger concerns. So I know I sound a bit like I'm just saying, don't worry about it. It will all get worked out. But I really do believe that there will be some narrowing of this bill in the end. No, but it's very helpful to know how the sausage is made in the Senate. So it's actually very helpful. I'd love to see who is arguing for the 20-year penalties and the million-dollar fines for using a VPN to use TikTok, because it seems pretty ridiculous. I'll say again, I really doubt that when the staffers and the council or the lawyers were drafting this in the original context, they almost definitely weren't thinking about implicating end users in this writing because it doesn't say end users, but a broad interpretation could potentially include end users. So they'll they'll have to narrow that down. I'd have to go back and look. I, th- I thought it was in that direction, but I, I could be remembering it wrong. It's been a little while. The other question I had about that whole situation was the way that the bill was being marketed as a TikTok ban. Because when you looked it up on social media or in the news, it was all TikTok ban, TikTok ban, TikTok ban. But it was not a TikTok ban at all. It was something a million times broader than that. So when I see something marketed as one thing, very obviously, whoever marketed it, I don't know. And then on the other hand, when you read the bill, it has nothing to do with the marketing. It makes you wonder, and we live in a time when people are not trusting the media, But here's a per example A, where you have one of the most important bills since the Patriot Act in terms of how we're going to deal with every possible version of technology that could possibly be created now or later. And we're making it very onerous for people to use those things if someone decides that it's beneficial to an adversary and it's marketed as something totally different. So it definitely gets your spidey sense up and wondering who thought that was a good idea. Because they marketed it as very a lot more innocuous than what it actually was. Yes, I remember this specific moment because it actually wasn't that long ago. One of the things that tends to happen in Congress or in an administration is you pick up on the news cycle. And at the time that this bill was being introduced, TikTok was the focus of the news cycle. What threats exist from large data collection on U.S. persons? if that data is able to be pilfered and taken over by the Chinese Communist Party. And pretty much the average American can understand that there is some level of threat that exists there. They feel deeply uncomfortable that a communist dictator could have 
access to their information. And so what happens when you have a news cycle or a really easy to comprehend issue is that members and their comms teams will focus on that issue to kind of be the point of getting the understanding of the bill into the general public. And Senator Warner's team used that as their point. And Senator Warner himself really did try to emphasize today it's TikTok, yesterday it was Kaspersky Labs. There are different types of technologies that our adversaries are using to get into the U.S. systems and actually in front of U.S. persons. But we never are going to really know what those are ahead of time. So we have to create some sort of system for checking and reviewing these technologies coming out of adversarial countries and making sure that the way they're used in our systems are not to the benefit of those adversaries and against U.S. national security. But I think that message that this is a broader, a much broader bill that's supposed to be able to allow this review of all these different technologies did get lost as they heavily focused on the TikTok issue. And that, that was partially because there were also competing TikTok bills. There was some, obviously, some courts issuing concerns about specifically going after one and only one company. They had some reasons for doing it, but I do understand your concerns. And I think there's a way that they could have kind of dual tracked it a little more clearly to the general public. I have to say, Megan, it's great to talk to you about this because I feel a whole lot better about the situation after the last 10 minutes. So thank you. As you know, on the same topic, TikTok CEO testified on Capitol Hill a few months ago. Can you characterize the importance of this testimony and then perhaps share your view of his answers to certain pointed questions? I think that he had two goals in his testimony. And one was maybe even more important than the other. So the two goals were likely convince everyone in Congress that the CCP can't access data from TikTok and they won't assert influence because of it. And the other goal was to convince TikTok users that they should keep using TikTok, that they were fine, that it didn't matter what was happening. And the SNP test was a little iffy. I'd say that he failed pretty miserably to convince the legislature that the CCP couldn't access data. When it comes down to it, I think they're going to have to completely get out of ByteDance or there could be a total ban coming on TikTok. But I think that TikTok users themselves had a different response to his testimony. They are trying to assert influence on the Biden administration. They're trying to, the, these younger users are trying to tell Biden that you are cutting off a source of income for, for this generation, that you are unnecessarily hampering our creativity, that you are going to lose votes in the upcoming election if you ban TikTok. And I think he actually did a pretty good job of coalescing this influencer community around the TikTok cause that's been somewhat successful. There hasn't been much movement on it since then. But on the legislator side, in the House and on the Senate, I think he really failed. And he more or less admitted that ByteDance could still access U.S. user data. 
And that's the exact concern that the U.S. national security community has. And on top of that, they can do tons of influence operations, disinformation that's directed from the CCP through this, this format. Would you recommend a young person out there to be using TikTok at all based upon what you know? And do you think their data is compromised by China or the Chinese government? And next, do you think young people are being influenced to go in one direction or another based upon whatever agendas the Chinese government may have? So there's the average young person who's probably using TikTok primarily to figure out whether they can style their hair in a curly style versus a straight style. And how much concern do I have about that? I have a 13-year-old niece. Let's be honest, I don't love that she has been on social media for since she was even younger than she is now. And pretty much every aspect of her life is going to have some data trail that could potentially be used against her later. I have fundamental concerns about that. I have a libertarian streak in me myself. And this is also coming from someone who was part of the first Facebook generation that was pre-public getting on Facebook. I went to Stanford in the mid-2000s, which means that the first time I drank, which was slightly before the age of 21, there are pictures of me on Facebook from that. And all of this stuff can be used against you in one way or another eventually. I feel deeply uncomfortable when it's a, an authoritarian country that can con control some of that movement and some of that data. And then there's just this whole other part of having kids and younger people on social media. Um, there's harassment, there's pushing kids towards suicide or other problematic behaviors. And it's an entirely addictive format. I do have a libertarian streak, so I don't love banning things. I don't, I think restrictions are good for kids. I'm very conflicted about a lot of these things, but would I want young people on this? No, of course not. Do I think they're going to use it regardless? Yes, until the adults in the room decide what is in the best interest of 17s and unders. And when it comes to an authoritarian power, having access to all of it, I'm much more willing to put in restrictions than I would be for a true American company. Do you think the Chinese government today is pushing young people in certain directions around social causes or around the election and sort of steering them with their AI in, in directions that are adversarial to U.S. interests? Of course they are. And of course they're trying. How good they are at it is a question. But of course they're trying. Can you really talk about Tiananmen Square? Can you really talk about the Uyghur genocide? Can you really talk about the Tibetans? No, of course not. And there's been restrictions on certain human rights activists that they have their accounts blocked. They have their TikTok. They have their reels squelched. And there's always the story that comes out later, they were put back in place, or it wasn't squelched for too long, or it wasn't really that bad, but it was still happening. And that's what you see publicly. What you see at smaller amounts is movement in certain directions, influencing in certain directions. It's marketing. It's, it's getting people to care about one thing or another, or pushing them against one side of the debate versus the other. And there are smaller things that good 
people can use to influence that's not just disinformation, misinformation, misdirection. And of course, that happens in social media all the time. And the more you have an authoritarian government in charge, the more that can happen. And we have to remember, this isn't just a U.S. company, right? This is a company who's under the purview of a Chinese company, correct? And they are under the purview of the Chinese national intelligence law. And what is that? The national Chinese intelligence law basically mandates that persons in China and outside of China who are subject, who are Chinese, that they have to share with the CCP information and not tell anyone about it. Basically, it mandates that they share intelligence. And we don't know how significant this is. Is it happening constantly? Is it happening sometimes? How is this working exactly? But we know these laws exist and we know they're extraterritorial. So with these laws, you have to have a fundamental level of concern about sharing with the CCP coming from Chinese companies. Makes a lot of sense. I want to transition to another topic that's of concern, which is artificial intelligence. And a number of folks, prominent folks in Silicon Valley have warned that AI could be the end of humanity if it's not controlled and or regulated in a way that prevents that. Can you give us a sense of what's happening in DC or at any level of national or state government that is attempting to regulate or steer AI in a more neutral direction? I should preface a little bit before I answer this question that you can probably tell my general views on AI by the fact that I founded an AI-based company. So just giving your audience a little bit of clarity that I'm going to be more on the positive side than the negative side. So DC has a lot of people in leadership on the House and Senate side in particular who are not very young and often not particularly technologically savvy. And they also have a large population of people who weigh in on things regardless of their own knowledge base on the issue. So that that should be the baseline assumption when you talk about regulating any new technology is recognize those are basic truths. And so you're going to have a bunch of people talking about regulation who don't understand what AI can't do, what the future looks like, and what the options are short of banning and kind of squelching or hampering development. And then you have these pretty egregious stories of like, what are worst case scenarios if we don't do this? And so you're going to have people barreling full speed ahead on regulation especially when you link AI with big tech, where there's a lot of suspicion that already exists there. My concern is that we are not spending pretty much any time whatsoever educating either on the staff level or on the member level about what these issues are, what it does, what it doesn't do, what the good implications could be and how we make sure that we don't hear with U.S. development of technology as a result. Silicon Valley is one of the strengths in America. And so I worry a lot about over 
burdensome regulation, often in the sense that could basically hamper one of our power centers in America. I think unless tech companies who actually understand the technology really start to talk to members, really start to talk to staff and get them educated quickly, we're, we're going to end up passing legislation that will be problematic. Can you tell us a bit about your new venture with Solid Intel? So I've spent 15 years both in and outside of government working on Asia policy and strategy. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how disruptions can drive change. And some disruptions are obviously, you can't anticipate them, but some of them you can. And we can organize ourselves now to withstand disruptions. And I'm personally of the school that there is a very decent chance of a conflict between China and Taiwan. I think it's deterrable and it's not inevitable, but the indicators all mean that we should be preparing for a sizable economic disruption in the case that China does try to take over Taiwan. And that means that we need to look at the different parts of our economy to de-risk and make sure that they're able to to stand any economic disruptions. And I think we're starting to do that a lot in our bigger Fortune 100s and 500s. But, you know, half of our economy are SMEs. And so what Solid Intel is doing is we're focusing on helping SMEs de-risk and making sure that they have alternative suppliers in place and can really look at the different risk factors of having supply chains in China and identify, you know, maybe it's okay to have plastics that create some sort of doll go through the Chinese market. No one is really going to end up in a problem situation because of that. But there are sectors, there are regions, there are types of companies that they can be involved with. And in the case of a big economic disruption, they need to be able to either be out already or get out really fast. And what we're trying to do is design an AI product that helps them do that. We're coming in at a really interesting time because we're using AI tools for this. We're not trying to do this manually. And that's actually really, really necessary for a couple of reasons. One of which is China really doesn't want us to do the sorts of evaluation that supply chains need based on US regulations. And they're doing things like they're essentially kicking out the auditors. They're making it so it's harder and harder for state-owned enterprises, which is a huge bulk of the where our supply chains touch on, that they won't share information. And because they don't want to be able to have U.S. companies recognize that there's Uyghur forced labor in their supply chains or military subsidiaries. And so they're going to make it harder and harder for manual understanding of supply chains. So we really do need to move over and use as much data and as possible to identify the likelihood that there's there are risky parts of supply chains and then de-risk if necessary. Fantastic. It sounds like a much needed service. We always like to end with a positive spin, if that's possible with the topics we're talking about, of course. So let me ask you, what set of policies would you like to see that would give us all a little more hope for the future, whether with regards to AI or our relationship with China? So I am 
always going to be bullish on America. I think that in the long run, we get our act together. We usually take a long time to do so. And because of that, I think we really do need to get our priorities in line. We need to get our domestic priorities in line. We need to shore up our trust funds so we have long-term assurances about our social programs. But we need to invest rapidly in deterrence measures to reduce the likelihood of any sort of conflict in, in the Asia-Pacific region. And there are lots of ways we can do this, one of which is I think we really need to make sure that our timelines for our innovative technologies that we're developing now actually align with the timelines of when we think the risk is starting in a real way which is usually 2027, although some people say a little bit earlier, some say a little bit later. And we need to minimize burdensome regulations on tech, medical, agricultural, climate change advancements. And honestly, we need to fix immigration. We need to have a brain drain into America as much as possible. And I think all of these are actually bipartisan issues people agree on them in the long term and in the short term. It's just getting through some of the nuances to get there. So I think that we're going to do it. The, the more risky the global environment is, the more likely we're able to do these things quickly. And I actually trust. It's hard to say that because I've dealt with some special things working in government, but I actually trust that when it comes down to it, all of these members the administration, they really will barrel forward and do the right thing to put us in the best possible situation moving forward. Megan, thank you so much for your time. Really a um, very productive conversation. I'm sure our audience will appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.